Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Snow Sunday edition of the Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks podcast. Due to weather, we are not meeting for our usual church service, so I have instead decided to upload this message, which I am delivering to myself in my empty office. A little awkward, but I trust that some of you will enjoy this. With that said, you may hear a snowplow go by every now and then, so please excuse the background noise. If you're listening to this, it probably means that you're a pretty faithful listener or attender of the church. So with that in consideration, I plan to look a little deeper into Revelation on the subject of God's judgment and wrath. How can a loving God produce such ugly pictures of wrath and hatred in the book of Revelation? So I will do my best to take a stab at that. Hope you enjoy. There is this cartoon in which a ragged, dirty, wily coyote is on an unending chase after this fast, snarky, adorable roadrunner. And every one of his schemes to catch the roadrunner tend to backfire on the coyote. When he tries to get the roadrunner to run off of a cliff and plummet to his death, the coyote always ends up being the one to fall off the cliff himself. When he desires to blow the roadrunner up, somehow the coyote is blown up. As silly and repetitive as this cartoon can be, it seems to illustrate a law within God's moral unit. This law is that evil tends to boomerang upon those who produce it. Paul writes in Galatians 6 verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he also will reap. In other words, you throw a certain kind of seed out there, you're going to get a crop based upon the seed you threw out there. So he explains, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Did you know that only 5% of the matter in our universe is visible? Only 5%. That means there is 95% of invisible matter in our universe. This 95% consists of 25% dark matter and 70% dark energy. Dark, not because it's evil, but because it's unseeable. And frankly, science has no clue what dark matter or dark energy is. 95% of our universe, we don't have a clue what it is. Now, we do know what dark matter and dark energy do. Dark matter, like all matter, has its own gravitational pull. So that it's not just stars and planets and galaxies that have a gravitational pull, but 
the matter in between. Dark matter also has its own gravitational pull and is pulling things towards itself. Now the problem is that with all of this matter and gravity, the universe should be closing in on itself to a fine little point until the entire thing crunches. The gravity should continually pull the universe into itself. But that's not happening. Science shows that the universe is actually expanding. And not only expanding, but expanding at an accelerating rate. To put this in simpler terms, imagine you throw a baseball up into the air. What should happen? The baseball goes up, and at a certain point it reaches the top, and then it begins to be pulled back down to the earth. The universe should be reacting in the same way. It should be expanding outward, but then coming to a point and gravity will win over and begin to pull it back in and it will eventually collapse on itself. So what is causing it to continue to expand contrary to gravity? Enter dark energy. Whatever dark energy is, it is a force that continues to push the universe outward preventing it from collapsing on itself. Now I tell you this because this illustrates how evil works. Those who choose to put themselves at the center of their universe and produce works that harm their neighbor and harm the world tend to have their own gravitational pull. Those who do evil have chosen not to orbit around someone else or another's laws, but rather they create their own laws and try to get everyone and everything around them to orbit around them. They have a gravitational pull. Now, by nature, we all have this. We all want everything orbiting around us and serving us. But evil becomes especially harmful when this gravitational pull becomes too strong. And what happens is every time an evil act is committed, if the gravitational pull is too strong, that evil will boomerang back upon the evildoer himself, thus creating a coyote and roadrunner scenario. But what about Job? Job was a righteous man, yet everything collapsed in on him. You might also be wondering about your neighbor, about your employee, about your colleague, a fellow student at school. You see what they do and you wonder, why aren't they getting what they deserve? It doesn't seem that people reap what they sow. It doesn't seem that evil boomerangs on them. But perhaps... Not yet. Martin Luther King Jr. is famous for saying, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. In other words, when evil is thrown out, it may not immediately boomerang back. It may take longer than we think it should, but it will.
The same with good. It also boomerangs back on those who do so. Just look at Job. After all he suffered, he refused to curse God. Instead, he pressed in further in his worship of God. And at the end of the book, a very long book, which is very difficult to read, but at the end, eventually, Job's righteousness boomerangs back upon him. And we're told that he is restored to twice as much as he had at the beginning. It may take longer than we desire, but the law of God's moral universe states that what we reap, we will sow. Moral gravity is a real thing. What we throw out at others will come back upon us. So the question is, do we have enough dark energy in our lives? Enough of God's spirit, a mysterious force, which continues to work through us and out of us to keep good going, lest our own works collapse in on us. God forgives us so that what we throw out does not always come back upon us. He's willing to take that upon himself. Well, this now turns our attention to Revelation and the judgment that we see being poured out upon the evildoers of the earth. Now, while Revelation does show the judgments upon humans coming from God, I want to propose that God is not authoring the judgment. The humans have authored the judgment themselves. They are reaping what they have sown. So when Revelation shows the judgments as coming from God, we have to remember that the Bible is using metaphor, it's using language, it's using symbol, it's grasping at our finite tools to describe the infinite God. So that it may appear that God is authoring the judgment. But can a God of love really hurt people? Can a good God be the author of wrath? One of our problems is our understanding of the word judge or judgment. We often think that when God is going to judge the world, it means that he is going to produce some sort of harm upon the world. We think of judgment as what happens to bad people. But all a judge is supposed to do is pronounce punishment. A judge doesn't produce the punishment. He simply pronounces the punishment. And what does his pronouncement of judgment come from? It comes from the law. So that the law is what punishes while the judge pronounces. So when we see God judging the world, it is not that he is conjuring up some sort of painful, tormenting agony to dump upon the earth as if it's his cosmic waste bin. Rather, God is king of the world, the king of kings. He is sitting on his throne and he's pronouncing 
that the behavior of humans has produced the wickedness and the judgment that's coming upon them as we read it in Revelation. So as judge, God is pronouncing who produced it. The evildoers have produced it. Their evil has boomeranged back upon themselves. God's good creation, the roadrunner, his church, his people, the roadrunner, the world has been hostile towards and has hurt. And those actions are now, it's taken a long time, but they are now finally boomeranging back upon the evildoers. Again, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We get hints of this boomeranging effect in Revelation. If you look at chapter 14, verse 17, we see this scene of the end of time. And we read, 14, verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Now, this gets graphic. Verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, or roughly 200 miles. So the grapes are gathered. If these are wicked people and their deeds, they're gathered, it's crushed, so that the juice, the blood, is coming out. And as usually when, when people would press on the grapes in the wine press to make their wine, the juice would flow out from the bottom of the press and into jars to be gathered and stored. Well, in Revelation, this image is now being gathered into bowls. And seven angels are now going to come forward with bowls filled with the wrath of God. Where did this wrath of God come from? It came from the wine press, which was simply the extracting of the evil that people have already committed. In other words, as the angels are about to pour these bulls upon the earth, it's simply an image for the evil people's evil boomeranging upon themselves. So that's why in chapter 16 we read that the angels are now pouring out one bull at a time, upon the inhabitants of the earth. Now, I want you to notice that in the first four bull judgments, just like the first four trumpet judgments, they affect creation. See, it's as if the agency of the judgment isn't God producing it. It's coming from the creation. It's coming from the thing that humans have not been very good at cultivating and loving and nurturing. We abuse the planet, and the planet retaliates. Their evil is boomeranging upon themselves. Then in the fifth bowl, we see it poured out upon the leader, upon the system of this whole evil, culminating in this guy, the Antichrist, called in Revelation, the Beast. Then in the sixth and seventh bowls, we have a very different image of the judgment. And that's going to be dealt with in the upcoming chapters. 
chapters 17, 18, and 19 zoom in on what happens in the sixth and seventh bulls. Chapter 19 shows the return of Jesus. We would expect a dramatic picture of the return of Jesus, coming as if the one to squash the grapes in the wine press. And we almost get that picture, but then we are quickly shocked. For we read in Revelation 19, verse 11, John says that he saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now that's a picture of Jesus coming. But then in verse 13, we read this. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, we would quickly think that the blood his robe is dipped in is from the wicked doers that he's squashing, like the picture of the wine press. His robe is covered in blood, especially the bottom, dipped, because he's been smashing the grapes. That's what we think as humans who want to retaliate and do something about evil. But that's not what we see in Revelation. Jesus hasn't yet done anything to the wicked upon coming to earth. It just says that he appears, and he appears with his robes already dipped in blood. Who's blood is it then? His own. Recall that in Revelation chapter 5, John sees Jesus approaching the one who sits on the throne, and he says this, Revelation 5, 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This blood is the blood of Jesus. And then 5.9, they sung a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's what we're seeing when Jesus returns in chapter 19. It's not the blood of the evildoers that he's smashing. It's the blood of himself, which he has shed as an opportunity for all people to come into his kingdom. Now, I'm not saying that when Jesus comes, all those people are going to be saved. We don't know exactly how that's going to work. But we do know that it's a picture of, of how he's been operating. In Jesus, God has shown the world the shocking revelation of what God is really like. God is not like one of us, trying to get everything to work our way and get everyone to like us and to gratify our selfish desires. Mm -mm. God has been giving of himself graciously, generously, pouring himself out over and over and endlessly. And even when we continue not to want him, he keeps pouring himself out. It's we who author our own pain, our own judgment, as we continually resist and harden ourselves to his 
energy, which is trying to pull us out of our gravitational collapse. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you not to set your life up with rules, just rules that you follow, but rather to set your life up by following this lamb. Rules are easy. I can set them up and I can obey them, but they don't take me anywhere. But following the lamb takes me somewhere. And if the arc of the moral universe is doing something, I want to be moving with that. I want to be flowing with God through history. That's why we should follow the Lamb. Free ourselves from rules which only make us want to break them or find ways to cheat them or shortcut them. And the whole idea is just, again, it's self-centered. It's a whole, it's a system of gravity. But by following the Lamb, I'm pulled into His gravity. And I am forever spinning in His love party, the dance of Father, Son, Spirit. And I am filled and full. So while it's easy for us to look at Revelation and the judgment and to think, yeah, go get him, God. I see this rather as an encouragement for us to continue following and to praise him for the goodness that we experience in him. My decision to follow Jesus hasn't been one of great sacrifice and drudgery. And the way you hear some people talk, they want to know, What can I get away with and still be a Christian? And everything God has called me to be and do and every step I've taken to follow the Lamb has only brought more and more fruit. And I regret not one decision to obey Him. Let us do the same. Let us be sowers of goodness and love that we could reap the same that others can see the joy in our lives and the love and the peace and the harmony in our lives, that they can see all things working together, that there's a balance in our universe of a gravitational pull, but also a moving outward, that nothing's going to collapse on itself, but we're moving somewhere. We're going somewhere. We're following the Lamb, and we're going to see the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that lie out there. So on this snow Sunday, I hope you guys are staying warm. You're enjoying this next to a fire or some hot cocoa or tea or coffee or whatever your thing is. And that God blesses you guys, that you revel in the relationship you have with him and you keep going. I look forward to seeing you guys next Sunday as we tackle Revelation chapter 17.